Hi, this is Rob Zabrecki, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. And on the Drinks with Tony show, yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Rob Zabrecki. He's the author of Strange Cures, a memoir. He's also an actor, magician, and musician, frontman of the band Possum Dixon. How you doing, uh, Rob? Feeling pretty good. Thanks for having me, Tony. Yeah, thanks for thanks for showing up. It's just, you know what's so much fun about a lot of this life is showing up even if you don't feel like it, and then it turns out okay. Have you found that? Uh, I find that practically every day when I have to drag myself out of bed and go, oh, I got to face this. Okay, and then you, yeah, I mean. I've heard that a lot. Uh, I think in Magic I started hearing that. Half the job is showing up. And that's probably true for everything. And so we'll, so you brought up Magic. Let's go Magic. Um, I, I really liked how you got into Magic, which was by doing tricks when you were in your band. Um, but uh, what, what was it about Magic that like you realized there, like, you realized there was like, it was almost like a truth to you in a way? Yeah, well, I think I would say it, there was a, it's a two-part answer to that question. Number one is I wanted to reinvent myself. I was at a point in life where I was kind of, uh, when dream had expired, it was over. You know, I was waking up from going, I don't know if I really want to do this anymore, being in a band, idolizing rock people, kind of living in the, uh, being a fan of music and then starting a band and kind of going down that whole trail of you know releasing records and touring and stuff and um, kind of moving away from that and so that was the first part and the second would be realizing that magic is an art form just like anything else is uh, you know a, a good magic act can feel the same as seeing a great band or you know going to a great art show or or you know watching an amazing dance so you know i think that that there's correlations that when i saw that i went yeah i want to do this there seems to be um well there's definitely a very performance part to from what i've from my point of view when i see magicians the the you could be really talented but if you don't have the performance angle it could be it, it could just be a um you know, it's almost like a learning lesson, but you, but if you if you have the the performance, which I've watched some of your videos, and you really do have that like real performance element, then there, it just it brings a, a different dimension to it. I li- that's what I love about magicians. Well, thanks. Um, I I that's what I kind of strive for, and probably excel at a little bit, almost because of my lack of technique and years of not being a little kid who studied with magic kits and you know was in a magic club or any of that because I wasn't. Um, but uh, it's funny when you see someone perform a magic trick really well that is that doesn't have the performance behind it. It almost is akin to like a, a heavy metal guitar solo that's just totally like a, like the shredders, where they're just playing a million notes a second, and none of it really means anything. It's just super fast, and it's just bar- in a barrage of technique uh, versus something that's maybe a little more slow or artful that is more steeped in performance. So. I always go for that. That's always my, you know, I'll always go for, uh, you know, a beautiful story or something that has an element of surprise or, you know, touches of like a Hitchcock theme or something that kind of like, oh, that's got a neat, you know, twist ending to it that was fascinating and doesn't feel like it's, you know, too forced. 
I like that. I didn't. I didn't even think of that until now. Because you, when you think of magicians and magic, you just think of the tricks. You don't think that there's a story unfolding and there's there's drama, and there there's almost plot points to a magic trick. Hundred percent. I mean, that's a, no. And people don't generally get that. They, I mean, most people. And, and I, I I don't like making sweeping generalizations, but unlike other art forms, people go, "Oh, magic." So like Siegfried and Roy, like David Copperfield, like David Blaine. There's like three things that they think you must be because it's a magic now in music there's they i think the general population has a great there's a greater sense of different genres and speeds and styles and all that jazz including jazz uh but uh i don't know like in magic that there's such people have such a preconceived notion oh are you a kid's birthday party magician is that all is that what this is not realizing that yeah any good magic trick uh will be will have a plot it'll have a beginning a middle and an end no different than, you know, a Beatles song. When you're working on a trick, do you, do you come with the trick first, or do you come at, or do you come with like a storytelling element, and you're like, okay, what would be what would be the trick and the angles on that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is, it's both. Sometimes you'll fish around in a magic book, and you'll see. An effect that's super cool, and people, no one's, you haven't seen anyone do it, so you, you get a vision of it in your mind of what this thing looks like, and you go, okay, well, that's, I've got the puzzle. So I always call the, the, the I like to say that um, tricks on their own are are fantastic puzzles, but w- when we infuse them with a point of view, they become these little bits of theater, yeah. right? So you get you get the puzzle, right? And then once you've got the puzzle, you start writing. Okay, well, what does this say about? What could this piece say about me? And what could it say about life? Yeah. And if you can do that, you're you've got it. And and the, to me, those are you know I try to surround myself with with magicians who think like that and who are interested in storytelling and trying to not you know fall into the the typical cliche of you know what what most magic is kind of perceived as. So that's that's really it for me that's the essential what does this say about me and what does it say about life and if i can if i can do that i feel like i've i've hit it it feels like i've written a song or written a short story or you know uh, i feel like i've authored something you know and you mentioned a magic book so like is this a secret magic book that um we can't find or is this is this a book that like i can go reference and then start fooling around with because i i gotta tell you when i'm when i when i read your book and i was going through it and i'm like I don't want to learn how to do that, but maybe it's just because I have a lack of purpose or something in life. I don't know. Well, I think that's why most people get attracted to art forms because they feel like they, they, they're looking for that purpose, you know. Uh, magic books are available to anybody. You got a credit card, you're good. You get on the internet, you'll be fine. Um, yeah, I mean, I think pre-internet, it was, you'd go into a magic shop and you'd maybe talk to somebody there and it would be like, oh, you're interested in mind reading? Well, here's a book called... You know the 13 steps to mentalism. Now it's kind of hush hush almost, and could feel a little uh, Harry Potterish and you know uh, cliche at times. But you know you kind of got to love that 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 these that so many magicians guard their 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 uh, art form in, in a little bit of secrecy because I mean now that the internet is is you know available to just about every person on the planet. Um, anyone go online and go, oh, how did they do blank? And it's all that, and there's going to be someone exposing that trick, or, you know, and that, which is, you know, that's, and that adds to the, the drama of, of magic in a way, because now, if you know all the stuff can be done, you go, okay, well, then 
I'm going to tell an interesting story around this, and I'm going to make this, if you make it a theater piece, it almost doesn't matter, you see, and hopefully the, your technique is good enough to where it, you, they don't see how it's done. It looks seamless, um, but that you presented something in a way that it, it's like, it almost doesn't matter. Like film magic is another thing. You know, there's edits, there's sound attitude, there's fonts on the title cards, there's so many different effects that go into every single movie uh, that, you know, you just... You, you look past all that stuff and you dive into the story and if you're in you're in and you forget that oh yeah these are just actors doing this and they had to pull back and there was a whole crew of people watching making sure that the sound was right and that the actors were delivering the right lines and that there wasn't a you know a boom shot in the a, a boom mic in the shot or whatever you know you know what I'm saying that kind of thing so just suspending belief is is another part of it and then it's interesting to bring in the uh, bring in movies and bring in the, that type of storytelling because I feel like you know, as characters develop in either a book or, or a film, they, the choices that they make in certain situations start to really get honed down. If it, you know, if we know this is a love story, we got two questions. Is he going to get the girl or is he not going to get the girl? And, if, and it doesn't matter, really, if he gets the girl or not gets the girl. It's about his pursuit and how he'll fuck up or how he'll make it work or how she'll challenge him things like that so so even though we're exposed to okay this is a love story we know one of two things is going to happen or maybe a third thing that maybe that's the same with magic where yeah, if it, I, I definitely think that's 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 true and you know uh, also in a, in a good magic performance and I'm not talking about like doing one isolated magic trick which I'm talking about say an evening show uh, I think we want to see the character change along the way, right? We want to. There's that moment of what's this? What's the character arc, right? What's what's the aha moment? When is what is their revelation? What is their you know? Uh, what is the turning point that makes them, you know, that makes us hopefully like them uh, a little bit more and you know feel that that sense of empathy and and uh, and if you can do all that stuff, you know, and I, and I think artists like Ricky Jay nailed it. Uh, uh, my buddy uh, Derek Delgadio, who had a show in, in New York City that ran for a couple of years called In and of Itself, was a wonderful example of somebody who took his his kind of life story and wrapped it up into uh, an evening magic show. And people responded to it uh, in, in a way that they would, you know, any, any great movie or, or, you know, other form of entertainment. I need to look those up. That sounds fun. <laughs> All right. And I was making the I was making the mental point to remember those names and look that up, and then I completely lost my thought. And we don't edit here, so this all stays in. Um, <laughs> uh, let me see. We were talking about magic. We were talking about the story, and um, oh, the first magic trick you performed, the first magic trick you learned, um, it was, was that was at a magic shop, right? It was. It was in uh, downtown Baltimore, Maryland. Oh, really? Yeah, I was on. Oh, were you on tour? I was on tour with my group Possum Dixon, and um, hot afternoon, we load our gear in a club and did some sightseeing. And I wandered in a magic shop for the single reason that there was an air conditioner outside, uh, and I wanted to cool off. So I did. I walked in and I cooled off, and then I felt guilty for not making a purchase. So I, I said to this, this man working at this Kenzo's Yogi Magic Mart uh, in deserted downtown Baltimore. I said, do you have a trick that I could perform for a couple hundred people on stage, nightclub? Kind of looks at me, looks me over a little bit, and he's like, well, what, what about this? And he 
takes a little silk handkerchief from his pocket and he vanishes it in his hand and presto change the it was gone and two things happened uh, one I could not believe what I'd seen I never really seen a close-up magic miracle in my life so there was that and two that it was for sale that for 10 bucks I could buy the silk handkerchief and the means to vanish this silk handkerchief so of course I kicked down the 10 bucks and I fumbled with the handling he kind of showed me how this revealed the you know how the trick was done so I fumbled with it and I threw it in my pocket and then that night we're on stage about midnight and a guitar player Celso Chavez uh, broke a string and I just remembered that thing I had in my pocket this this ob- this device to vanish a small object and I don't know why or how but I instead of taking out that silk handkerchief I just I said to the audience does anybody have a wrapped condom out there that you can throw up on stage and uh, someone did. Someone threw it up right away. And I took it out of the wrapper and I very clumsily made it vanish. And at that moment, the audience was very amused. They applauded and, and kind of went nuts over it. And I realized that they were entertained by not a song by my rock band or it wasn't about, it had nothing to do with like why we were there. It was this other thing that I you know, Rob Zabrecki was entertaining them on this whole other level. And uh, it was at a time when I was, you know, like I said, the, the band had like seen as our, but we'd certainly had our, our, our kind of, you know, quote, heyday in the early 90s and kind of on the, on the, uh, we were on the, the backside of our, you know, of our, of our salad days, let's just say. And so I was like, that was super fun. I'm, tomorrow night we're in New York City. I'm going to do that again. I just want to see if that was a fluke or not. We did it, and the guys tuned up after the third song, and I made the thing vanish, and it was a big hit. And so that, that kind of made me just kind of look around and be like, wow, I did that without these guys. <laughs> what am I doing in a band? Uh, I was just fed up being in a band anyway. So I uh, came back to L.A., and my, my girlfriend, who is now my wife, uh, had a pass to go to this place, the Magic Castle in Hollywood. I suited up. I got, you know, put together some version of a suit and we went there and uh, by walking in those doors uh, or should I say the secret entrance into the Magic Castle because I've never been there it's amazing and there's a really fun way you need to, you enter the club uh, it was a portal into another world one that I knew nothing about one I was just crazy about I was so fascinated by everything magic in the same way that I was with music when I was a kid like learning about bands and reading Cream magazine or, or, you know, any of those, you know, Hit Prater or Rolling Stone or any, any of those mags that you'd like, I just was a little obsessed with, oh, that band's on that label and oh, those records, oh, that, okay, and now that drummer's in this band and just reading about this stuff endlessly and looking at like, stills and just was, was nuts about it. Uh, and so it was that, that transferred right over to Magic. I just became, you know, who's Chung Ling Su? Who's Thurston? Who's, who's Carter the Great? Who's Alexander, the man who knows? Um, and that was it. That started my journey, and I've been on it ever since. We're looking at like 20, 24 years or something. And I still feel like greatly behind the kid, you know, people that are my age that have been doing this for X amount of years, even though I've been doing it now for 20 years. I still, part of me still feels like a novice um, because my first love is and will probably always be music. Um, so that's, that's how that all happened. What I really like about that is how, how our lives change, how our lives can change in a second. And just because of, just because you wanted to get some air, all you wanted was some air. 
while you were on tour. And you're just like, oh, air conditioning. And then then now you have a 20-plus-year career. I, that blows my mind. I, it, it blows mine, too, Tony. <laughs> I, I still... I mean, when I was writing the book Strange Cures, I was kind of like... I was writing it going, did this really happen? Like, yeah, that really... Okay. And I double-checked and talked to every person that was... Every witness that I could... And this, this is... These are the facts, right? Okay, because it's... When I, when I write about this, it feels like a dream. As much as my, that, that book does. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't. And you just... You never know when you're going to have a revelation. And, and then... So what was it where you said, you know what, I need to write the memoir about this. This is this is something that's aching at my guts that I have to kind of go through. Well, I think at a at a pretty young age, I had I had um, kind of amassed a, a small number of nearly unbelievable stories. You know, you're like you're standing around at a party in high school, and, and they're like, oh, well, what'd you do over the summer? I'm like, oh, my uncle shot me. <laughs> Uh, you know, I love that story, by the way. I mean, not because of the hurt that you went through, just because, yeah, wow. Yeah. So, yeah, and the other kids didn't have, and it was like, hey, people, everyone gather around. He's going to tell us the thing about the story about, you know, he used to have, you know, 47 warts on his hands, and he dipped his hands in cow shit every day for two weeks. Like these kind of, so my stories were a little bit different than the other kids, and I knew that, like, there was a value to them. Um, I didn't tell the stories well. It was just kind of like they would ask a lot of questions. I just kind of answer them. And no way is that true? No way. Let's see the bullet. Let's see the scar. Like, can I touch the bullet? You know, there's always these like almost doubting things. And and so that my life's been strange that way. Like there's just I, I've never I don't seek this stuff out. Just sometimes weird things happen to me. And at one point I thought, you know, I want to I want to share this story and. I had been sober for, I'd become addicted to drugs and alcohol, and, and by the time that I kind of got out of that world, I, I realized that there was another element of my story to share, which was that of recovery, and like, I kind of survived, I, I hate sounding like, I hate that word survivor, because I feel like it should be almost reserved for people that have fought wars, and you know, really been out there and like, risked their lives for something good, but for me it was you know, uh, self-sabotage, self-doubt, and, and like I, I, I took myself there, um, or the things that happened to me <laughs> to help drive them. Um, whatever it was, I, I um, you know, I got, I got myself out of a really dark pit of, of, uh, of drug hell, and I don't know, cliche, that sort of, I, I, it's almost embarrassing. Yeah, I was in a band, I was a drug addict. It's just like, yeah, duh. What else? Like, you know, those stories. If you're if you're a musician, they 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 become you know par for the course and 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 not embarrassing, but they just become uh, common. And I didn't. I I don't. I don't like to think that I've lived a particularly common life. And but yet, when I started realizing that I wanted to put all on paper and, and write these stories, I knew that I needed to include all this stuff because when I was getting into recovery early on it was it was reading books like you know permanent midnight or even even diving deeper into like Bukowski or, or Fonte who are you know they who wrote about kind of addiction like they were in it and stayed in it but those were helpful for me and then of course um, 12 step stuff was was invaluable as it still is today so I just thought well you know what this might be a book that someone's gonna pick up when they're trying to get their act together and this might be 
something that helps them. And then I went, okay, now I have a purpose. I have a reason to write this. Rather than just, oh, look at this crazy thing happened to me. I'm so cool. Aren't I interesting? Because that's, to me, not, not interesting. But I also had to face a lot of things that were super painful uh, and, and difficult to get through. Um, mainly the, 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 the suicide of a, a woman I was married to for a short period of time and knew for, you know, just about a year. Um, and she took her, you know, she took her life. Um, she was manic depressive, and I realized that if I was going to tell my story, I needed to include all that because if with not including it would have been a disservice to not only her but to how somebody kind of got through that. And unfortunately, the early parts of getting through that was I was you know strung out on on narcotics, and so it was. <laughs> it's not. It's not like. It probably isn't very helpful, but then later on, it was certainly something that has continued to make me look at life through a different lens and kind of just give me this eternal sense of gratitude and and kind of um, hope in a way to maybe share my story and maybe somebody goes, "Yep, that that kind of got me through a little hump." I do like the word survive because you you brought up suicide and I've had friends and family kill themselves and I've even checked myself into a hospital some years ago because I was at the end of my rope and I feel like um, there's a there, sometimes we just have to survive the human condition and sometimes it, we don't, just don't have the coping mechanisms and in place so you know the the survival story I think it's it does play well. You know, especially it's just like we could have killed ourselves. We could have went to those dark places. There may have been times when it was open to us, but we just made that shift of something. And you don't know where the shift's going to come from. It can be like the weather can change. You see a, a butterfly flies across your path. I mean, I, I you know, I, I get all that. And you just, you don't know. And, and, and in, in moments of weakness, we, we hear voices and we, you know, maybe we want to, you know, pursue that. The, the great unknown or, or whatever that is and yeah it could be in a form of a book it could be it could be getting us get, reading something at the right place at the right time that goes you go you say to yourself yeah I'm gonna you know pull up my bootstrap so to speak and get through this day and tomorrow maybe by being of service to somebody else it's gonna take me out of my head and or I'm gonna feel a sense of gratitude about hey my body works both my eyes work I dress myself today. I have gas in my car. You know, I have a pet that I'm taking care of. I have kids, or whatever your thing is. I mean, everyone's different, of course. But yeah, I think I think um, you know, some some days are harder than others, for sure. I think you know, but yeah, literature, great. If you can, I, if I, I felt like I was contributing was a was a pretty big big deal for me. Yeah, and that, I mean. Uh, music and reading and reading novels and finding that really did kind of like save my life on so many levels where I found I found voice I found voices I never knew where I was just like wait a second I understand these on a visceral level and <clears throat> got me through a lot of hard times and the other thing is when you were talking I was like something as easy as stubbing your toe can get you out of something because it's even though it sucks you feel that pain, and sometimes you just got to feel. It's <laughs> I can't agree with you more. Yeah, walking into a glass door, boom, getting some stitches in your forehead. Uh, but, yeah, the, I think um, you said 
you, you know you mentioned that music was is was it can be a driving force to to get you out of those yeah. dark spots and man you're, that is if that isn't true nothing is music has just it's such a lifesaver it is the, it, you know i think after i stopped performing and playing music for my my job you know for my source of income or my it was when i when i gave that up uh music became so much more important to me I started really I just be able, I was, like it's one thing when you're you're on a record label and you've got to produce music to kind of like for one way or the other it's you're looking at it as a like it's 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 a thing that helps you survive it's it's making it's putting food on your table electricity in your house or apartment or whatever so when that's all gone and you're just and you come back I got to become a fan of music again and still to this day I'm like my appetite for music is is huge it can take. It takes me to faraway places. It definitely is something that, you know, it's a it's a it's a big part of it. And it's a huge part of. I I think even in recovery, people don't. You know, it, it's an element that can like. Yeah, it's it's a valuable thing to realize that sometimes just you know blaring Roxy music can just take yeah. you, get you out of it. I had a um, I had a, a guest on the show some weeks ago who wrote a book about meditation. And she had a, a lot of uh, little exercises about like, you know, because I have terrible like self-dialogue and self-talk that I'm always trying to like veer into another way. And also just things, I, you know, things I want to do in life that feel utterly scary. And, you know, and she one of the things she said, which made so much sense, she said, make a playlist of what the future, what you think that future will be. So when you, so it's almost a playlist of you've already accomplished that. And that's your playlist when you accomplish it, but listen to it and put it into your um, and put it into like your soul already. And yeah, and I was just like, that makes so much sense. That I yeah, I sh- any I mean that yeah, I'll, I'll I'll think about doing that myself. I think any any tools. I was just going well. I'm gonna try something. I'm gonna like, you know, showing up is half of it, right? As we said earlier, is like you know. the um. Oh, and the other thing about music, which I really love, is it, it, it goes it goes across um, it goes across cultures. It goes across across language. We don't even have to know the language. We can just understand the emotional intent. And I think that's just something that's so beautiful. We we get to we get to remember. Oh wait, we're a part of humanity. We're not a we're not we're not in this we're not in isolation in these communities or such. Yeah, I don't know. I agree. I mean, sometimes I identify more with like. Ethiopian jazz on a certain day that just takes my it just turns it steers my attention in a whole other way of thinking other days it's John Cage other days it's you know uh, you know some obscure band from the post-punk era it's it's I just don't know and like those are the things that can be the just driving to the next thing you know obviously it can inspire you know story and and just the, the next project in a lot of ways. Yeah. I was listening to Wham last night. Now this is something I don't want to tell people, but for some odd reason I needed to listen to Freedom by Wham, and it felt really good. And sometimes and I used to be like a real music snob, where I would you know I'd be like I'd kick my ass for even saying that right now. And at this point in my life, I'm like you know what, that felt good. It felt good just indulging in George Michael and Andrew Ragely just for you know tw- uh, 10 minutes I agree and I, I I always throw out my my wild card is Taylor Swift 
one song I shake it off is like something weird for some reason and I don't know why I probably heard it in a grocery store I'm like oh that's got a nice little catchy little riff there so I downloaded it and and probably listened to that song about a thousand times wow. and it's and I'm not joking I'm somebody who I have that thing where I can listen to a song over and over and I always hear new things in it um, and I just don't really get tired of, 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 of music. I think maybe, maybe it comes from like listening to AM radio when you're a kid and like the same four Carpenter songs were just being recycled over over on KHJ or whatever. I don't know. But um, I can, I, now it's like a ritual where I can put the song on and I can sort of get out of the shower and by the time the song's over, I can be dressed and like ready to walk out the door. It's, it's got like, I've got a time down to like, Okay, we're in the bridge now, shirt on, okay, button the pants, all right, belt, boom, shoes tight, and the song's over, and I close my computer, and that's that. So. Taylor Swift helps you show up. See? <laughs> I, and, and others, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, who knew? I, 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 didn't, I, didn't, I knew nothing about Hannah Montana, Miley Cyrus, and then that Black Mirror episode came out. I don't know if you saw that where she did the cover of a Nine Inch Nails song, but, you know, it's totally kind of butchered and pop. But I watched the episode, and I'm like, oh, I kind of like that lady. I didn't even know I liked that lady, you know? Yeah, I'll, I'll take a look at that. Yeah. Um, but it's, there's something, I, you know, I was doing college radio, and I was one of those snot nose, just like, my, I knew more than you, you know, in my 20s. And I look back, and I'm like, that's ah, just a shame, because I find... I, go back and I listen to bands like Blur or Oasis who I just thought were pieces of shit at the time because fuck that noise and then I'm like no there's really good stuff in here and I missed it and I miss seeing them live because I had to go to my dirty little punk noise shows you know yeah I think that's that's a good thing to to face like I think it's almost it's almost a particular time and place like the the 90s snobbery of of indie rock of like Oh, that band's just, they're not good? Why? Oh, they're successful. Yeah. You know, it had nothing to do with whether their music was good or not. They just became, they were, they were cast out because they weren't on Amphetamine Reptile Records or, right. or, or Matador or, you know, um, Touch and Go. There was, they weren't sort of in this little snobby zeitgeist of, yeah. of music that was all fine and good. And those bands were actually, man, there was some great music that came out of that, but... I think the the philosophy and the ethos of that that Nirvana that Kurt Cobain sort of brought to you know a legion of kind of kids that were getting into music where you know corporate rock sucks and all that kind of jazz that he was promoting all the time and did pretty beautifully I got to say I mean it was amazing what what he had done but it, it, that really became a thing and now you look back at that and you kind of you can kind of laugh at it and go you know it's it's really it's really play, kind of played a small role in it and can open up our, the blinders can open up a little bit more yeah. we don't have to be so narrow-minded about things yeah it's um it's good fun um see and i had a thought but once you get a certain age and you're drinking coffee thought goes away oh yeah here's my thought and you're in a band you're in a band for a while you what is it like when you start when you meet your heroes what what, what are some of the what who are some of the heroes that you got to meet and um, and like, was there disappointment? Was how, what was, what was that? Because I, because I'm a fan. Because I've gotten to meet some of my heroes just being an interviewer, and some of it's been amazing, and some of it's been like, oh, that's a shame. But I still love their art. So I will never tell. 
um, because I don't want to uh, I don't want to um, swerve anyone anyone's opinion about someone that I met that had a terrible experience with or someone uh, who I thought I would have a terrible experience with and was uh, had an amazing experience with so I will I will keep those secrets to my grave uh, and tell you that the disappointment of meeting your heroes when they are less than what you want them to be or a complete fucking asshole to you or dismiss you as garbage or whatever any of those things and all of those have happened um, have deeply they 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 had a huge scarred they they certainly scarred because i like so many people in the arts we deify our heroes so they become they're like that's my jesus christ right there like that's somebody who i hold in the highest regard and boy if they if i could talk to them and meet them and if they maybe god maybe if they even liked my music or knew about it or whatever and then you know you, your you have expectations and hopes and when those are shattered it's you just feel like crying and quitting and giving up so that's awful uh and then conversely meeting people that that blew my expectations away that were man they made me they they empowered me and made me feel like i was doing the right thing and i was at the right place in time so it's a weird thing and and all i you know i'm at a place in life where not often but i mean maybe a fair amount of people see me as somebody who is accomplish certain things or I'm in a position where they go hey I really like what you've done or I admire your work and whatever and they want to sort of they want to have that experience where they're they see me that I'm on some kind of a pedestal maybe not like Jesus and hopefully not because I deifying people is, is pretty I realize it's a pretty dangerous thing um, but people still you know it still it happens and it probably will to the end of time and you kind of just go oh they're looking at me now how I looked at you know person X and and so I just try to be kind, you know, and, and listen and, and sort of be present for whatever that is and not, you know, react the way that others had reacted towards me. But I'm sure I've done some jerky things um, in which I can't change. But, you know, going forward, you just kind of think like, well, it's nice to ask people their names and what they, you know, try to ha throw it back in their court and hear a little bit about what they do. Because sometimes I've been really surprised and... I've gotten turned on to cool stuff because I met people that, you know, have liked what I've done, and and in in return, had I not, had I just brushed it off or you know dismissed it, I wouldn't have kind of like learned about you know certain artists. So it's a funny thing. There was a time when you played with uh, Jim Carroll, and you have that in the book, <laughs> and I love I, I love that story because. I was cringing the whole time because I love Basketball Diaries. I'm a huge fan of Jim Carroll. Anyway, bring, bring us into the cringeworthiness of the time you met. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's funny because that, that story, uh, meeting Jim Carroll was, was, a, was definitely a huge one. And the fact that I was out of my mind on one kind of drug and he, he was clearly out of his mind on another takes it out of the realm of reality of like, oh, I deify this person and they are jerky. Because truly, he opened his door and, and you know, so quick backstory is my band Possum Dixon was playing uh, at a fundraiser 20, 25 Christmases ago in a place called the Palace in Hollywood. Big venue, 1,500-seat venue, hometown audience. We're at the, you know, we're our, our music's being played at that point on 
KXLU, which is the college radio, which is super cool, uh, KCRW, which was NPR, and then KRQ, which is the big rock station. So we had like, we had hit like, we had made it as far as I was concerned. And we could kind of do no wrong. And we we're at a high point. And uh, so I celebrated that night by, you know, whiffing a bunch of crystal methamphetamine. Bad choice, bad choice, bad choice. Uh, and knowing that we were on the bill with Jim Carroll, we're like, well, we have to learn his song, People Who Died, because there's a, there's a long shot he's going to, we'll ask him to perform with us, and there's a long shot he's going to say yes, because he probably knows the song. So we learned the song in advance. And that night, I, I just remember walking up to his dressing room door, just out, I just nearly, my heart pounding out of my, my, my chest, and so nervous, but I had to meet this hero. And when he opened that door, he agreed. You know, he wasn't, he, he wasn't like, hey, come on, let's hang out. Who are you? It was like, yeah, I'll do that song with you guys. Super cool, New York, you know, distanced, but like, all right, let's do this. So there I was, you know, 20 minutes later, being, my band, Possum Nixon, was the backup band for, for that, that song while he performed People Who Died. And the audience couldn't have been more enthusiastic and big old, you know, mosh pit going and just everybody's smiling ear to ear, closing out the night with that song. It's amazing. Um, but had I had that experience if I was sober, my God, like what, they, who knows, like there could have, anyway, you can't like, I, I try not to look back and regret or, or cringe too much, but that was one of the things in the book that I had to put in there because it was like, yeah, I met one of my heroes in the like, the most awkward, uncomfortable way. And there was a positive outcome because we did get to do that song with him, but the memory is like, it's pretty, it's, it's tainted. Yeah. When, when you have to, and going back to the book, because you have to revisit memories that, you know, sometimes you could, you could put out of your mind, oh yeah, I got to, I got to play People Who Die with Jim Carroll. What, 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 like, what gets better than that? And then, but you got to go back and dig into the little, the layers of how it got to that point and what you were going through emotionally. What, and what was that like in that process? Did you know, like, the, when you hit some of these points when you're writing the memoir, did, did you feel like you kind of got to dark places when you had to, like, just revisit? Yes. Uh, much of the time, that was the case. And it was uh, a painful experience that I, would would not do again um i it was a dark it was it took me 13 years to to write the book off and on of course but each time i'd go back and dive into a story and look at it from different angles and think about what i was who i was at the time and what i was what my intentions were and like what what i was kind of who i was as a person man it was just uh, it was it was really it's painful to to go back and, and revisit that stuff and uh, I would not do it again uh, for for probably any amount of money, um, and I can't even say I recommend it. You know, like is it cathartic? Yeah, I guess. I mean, it, it certainly is, but it comes along with so much. So much of that looking back is, you know, I'm I should be here spending my time. Look, I, the idea was to write that book and get through the hell of it and the joy of it because the book really is about success and failure and reinvention uh, and self discovery, which three of those are were kind of fun to write about you know um the failure part is was something that like people don't really like facing that stuff and i certainly didn't take a lot of joy in writing about what my my failures were uh but it was to get on with it and to, to wrap it up because the book goes from like age you know one to 30 i think 31 or something I, that's when the, the book ends so it's the book ends 20 years ago um 
and the idea was like to just let, like to wrap up all those little memories, put them in a, put them in a book, and get on with my life and not have to look back so much. Now, going on promoting the book has been fun because I do get to look back at selected parts of it and talk about it and articulate all this stuff that was going through my mind. But hopefully, in the years to come, it's going to be, it's just a, it'll be a nice part of my past that's on a shelf somewhere that I don't have to keep sort of reminding myself like what the joy and the hell of youth youth was about. Yeah. Because there's still a lot of stuff I want to do, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I had that experience with the with Jesus Jerk, the book, because I was going into a lot of the pain that I went through. And then I thought my dream would come true because I got to write the film version of it. And it just made it worse. It just, I was like, I thought that book was going to be on the shelf. I thought it would be over. And here's another four years of me living through the hell of puberty and just that teenage years of awfulness and all, you know, anyway. And so sometimes when dreams come true, it's like nightmares almost. Yeah, I mean, we talked a little bit before you started rolling about, yeah, that process of having your, your book, your, your, your memoir optioned, right? Yeah, like, right. Like, like we've seen for decades and bands joke about in songs and uh-huh. uh, all that stuff. And you go, yeah, so what, what is this going to be? You know, what is this? And, and am I going to go through that process? And if I do, how attached do I want to be to it? Right. And, and, you know, sure, it would be nice if somebody wanted to give me you know, X amount of dollars to, to option the rights to my book and I could just let go of it and say, you, now it's your story. You do what you want with it. And, you know, I'll come to the screening. Yeah. Uh, write me when, write, just send me an email with the address and the time and that I don't, I'd rather not know anything else about this. Yeah. And that's kind of the stand. That's why, that's how I feel today. You know, I mean, having, living in LA and having access to a lot of people in show business, I have had people reach out about what that, what this book might look like as, you know, a feature film or the three-part HBO series or any of the any of these combinations, you know. So anyway, I, I sort of dread the thought of like, yeah, having to go through another four years of like, oh no, you're telling the story wrong. I, uh, it, it wasn't a jazz band I was in. <laughs> it, it takes place in L.A., not New Zealand. You know, whatever. Because as we know, like it's Hollywood, so people, you know, constantly twist the stories up and I think the point where I was trying to make a little bit earlier was the case in point is uh, I, so I'm a magician and I, you know, I perform uh, at the Magic Castle a lot at the Magic Castle there's a, there's a room called the Houdini Seance Room and in that room uh, it's all Houdini memorabilia and we, we retell the story of Houdini and we do like a Victorian style seance to conjure a spirit so from doing that I've learned a great deal about Houdini's life and watched a lot of movies about Houdini and read a lot about him. And every biopic, every film has been so greatly, has twisted these facts that are so wonderful on their own. The story of Houdini is beautiful. It, it tells a perfectly great story. There's no need to twist the facts of his life or death, but yet the 1953 uh, MGM flick, uh, I think it was just called Houdini, starring uh, Tony Curtis and I think, I think Vivian Lee. Uh, Janet Lee. Janet Lee. Uh, Tony Curtis plays Houdini, of course. Uh, uh, Janet Lee plays Bessie, his wife. And the de- his death was twisted up. In fact, in a way that didn't need to be... The, 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 just the true story of his life is fine. But yet, somebody, at, in some producer, some writer feels like, oh, we need to twist, we need to change the ending here. 
I don't get it. And it enrages me in a way that I just feel like, yeah, it's better if they, if somebody's interested in my story just to take it away and, you know, send it back. With it. Whatever their interpretation is fine. Right. <clears throat> and thank you for the check so I can continue my life. Exactly. Precisely. When were, when were you invited to become a magician at the Magic Castle? What, what was that experience like? Oh, I wasn't invited. I had to, I had to fight my way through it. Oh, my God. It was t- pretty, pretty, pretty sketchy. Um, had to fight my way through, uh, you know, a whole existing culture that was there. I came into Magic at a very unpopular time with a character that was very unpopular. And so it was very difficult. It was a long and hard process. And um, I had a burning desire to do it. So I... I got through the maze and found my spot in the sandbox and have kind of achieved some success from there you know and you had an audition for that right was there was there like a there was there like a big audition process it was a painful audition yes there sure was and i had to uh i prepared for about two three years to to get through that and you know i um i did it you know so after the audition you're in the magic castle and then after that everything's great right <laughs> <laughs> Hardly. Uh, well, you know, it, in some ways it kind of was because it, it was a golden period for sure because I had a new set of dreams, a new set of goals, and uh, I had kind of I'd gotten sober, you know, so like life had definitely changed and, and reinventing yourself at, you know, I don't know, 20, 28, 29, uh, and wanting to change my life's purpose from one art form to another was a, was a big deal. And it was fun. Part of it was fun because it was, it was so out of the blue for so many people and against all odds, people couldn't believe you're what you're a magician. Like it didn't make sense. Uh, in the mat, in, in the music world, all those people that, you know, kind of knew me as a musician who had had some success was get your, your, you're leaving us to do that. Like it just was confusing. But in my mind, it was all very, it was abundantly clear. You know, I wanted to just kind of get away from it and start something new. And I saw this vision for some kind of future and it, it turned into something, you know, I was able to, uh, make it my, my occupation. And I've got to travel the world, uh, doing that. I've been, you know, I can't tell you many countries I've been in, but several continents and, you know, um, I lecture now for magicians. I've written magic books and articles and, you know, it's, it's something that I'm deeply passionate about. I love it. And it's, it's a big part, you know, of my, of, of who I am today. And I'm glad I made that choice. It's intriguing that the musicians were, they, they were probably challenged. Well, some, some of them, maybe your close friends, I don't know, tell me I'm wrong, but they were probably challenged that you were taking this new direction because they have to look at themselves and go wait a second what 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 am I doing and am I doing the right thing some of them did yeah and I think you know because I've been on this journey with so many musicians since my late teens early 20s where they had all kind of like had their own successes and failures to certain degrees and they probably had to go oh well he's he's going into magic well huh what I wonder what else you know is this is this the dream that I wanted as well? And for some of them, it's been amazing. And they've gone on to, you know, win Grammys and, you know, turn out to be, you know, rock stars in, in, that, in the true sense of the, of the word. Uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, I went and saw Death Cab for Cutie, the, the, the not Seattle, the, I guess they're Seattle-based, uh, Washington-based uh, alt-rock band. 
indie rock band. It's hard to say indie rock and the Hollywood Bowl in the same word, but <laughs> they played to you know 20,000 people up there. And this was a band that used to open up for us in Seattle at a five, 600 seat venue. And you, so you see, we, we saw that whole trajectory of, of you know, being a small band, releasing cassette-only releases or whatever in the 45s and to, you know, having songs in major soundtracks and, you know, selling out venues like, like that. It's astonishing, you know, because you go, well, they've, they've stuck with their dream and they did it. What would have happened had I stayed with my music dream? You know, I'll never know. At the same time, um, do, you, do you feel like part of uh, getting sober really opened up the magic world to you? Did, was, was, um, was that around the same time with the Magic Castle that you stopped using? Well, yes, it's, it was around the same time. But yeah, I mean, I looked at the world completely different. Like, like success wasn't poison to me. Like in, in the early days of being in the Possum Dixon, you know, I, like early on, we, we didn't want to be too popular because that wasn't cool. And you want to be underground and hip and only be played on KPFK or KXLU or college radio and stay and run with those little circles. And But as we kind of came up from that and did become more successful there was I had felt a certain amount of guilt about oh I don't want to be too successful it's not really cool to do that so I was you know self-sabotage started setting and that was a big part of you know why I I felt like I didn't want to listen to the record company when they said hey you're a really handsome guy we could sell records if you'll do some you know if we could isolate you as the as the front man and get you to co-write some songs with a couple of these people the hit makers and use these hottest producers of the day we're not saying it's guaranteed, but your chances are you're gonna. This would be a real, this would be a really good move for you, and I just shot down every idea like that. Uh, went after the other, like no, 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 no. I'm in a band. I'm not doing that. Where this is our music is about this small little thing, and it's got to be this and that, and that you know, it put me in a in its own box. So I think when I got into magic, I realized, yeah, I've got a weird magic character I perform as, but I do want it to be commercially available. Like there's a. I, I, you know, paying your bills is good and having, knowing who your audience is and how to appeal to them and not having these blinders. Oh, I can only, I can only be successful in this small way versus, yeah, what is, I want to re, I want to reach a nice broad audience. How do I do that? And now more than ever at 51, I'm totally open to it. You know, I, I don't see, there's no foul or, or shame in it. At the same time, if you were open to it when you were younger, you may have never discovered magic because you're the, it might have shifted and you wouldn't be in this place of bliss and joy right now. <laughs> 100%. That, that I can blame or credit magic for, I don't know, depending yeah. on the day. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for being on the show. Perfect ending right there. Thanks for having me, Tony. It was, really, it was really a blast talking to you. Thanks. Rob Zabrecki on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Strange Cures, a memoir. Uh, you can get it pretty much anywhere that you get your books. But if you want a signed and inscribed copy, go to robzabrecki.com. And also I want to give a shout out to KFJC 89.7 FM in Los Altos Hills up in the San Francisco Bay Area. Happy 60th birthday anniversary. Is it birthday or anniversary? I don't know. KFJC meant everything to me. That's when I started doing radio back in 1990. They're in the middle of a fundraiser for this year, coming to the close of their fundraiser. If you want to donate to KFJC, go to kfjc.org. And coming up on Drinks with Tony in the coming weeks, we have Nicholas Meyer, Peter Seth, Liska Jacobs, Matthew Spector, 
Madam Pamita, and so much more. Keep tuning in on Wednesday. I will see you next week.